Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. We're going to get back to doing some questions in a minute and get away from the negative stuff we had last week. But first off, I have a rather somber update. As I detailed in an earlier podcast, I had an H. chalensis that went quite a long time without feeding and then surprised me with a molt. Uh, after the molt, she was a little gimpy in the back legs, had some of the abdomen skin still stuck to her abdomen was incredibly, incredibly small in the abdomen, abdominal area. I mean, we're talking, you know, the size of a mature male that's been around for a while and has stopped eating like that type of, you know, a spider that's been starving almost. However, gave me some hope when she took um, her first meal in quite some time, took her second meal. She had been eating pretty well. Well, a couple weeks ago, she stopped eating again. So I was like, all right, this is normal for this species. We've seen this before. Not a big deal here. Uh, unfortunately, the other day I went to check on her. She was doing some tunneling at first, which I thought was a good thing because I will tell you, I've had the hardest time getting the species to settle down. I've given them, I've given them, uh, you know, substrate that's partially moist, substrate that's partially dry. I give them depth to dig in, some starter burrows. They never seem to take. Well, my female, my oldest female, or the female I've had the longest, ha- now has webbed up her entire enclosure. There's like it's like a Swiss cheese arrangement of little holes to her den all over the place. She's done a, a lot of burrowing and finally seems settled in is eating well. So when I saw the, you know, one that had just molted and was a little bit, you know, sickly looking, start to dig. I'm like, all right, this is a good sign. Well, the other day I went into my tarantula room to check on her and she was kind of scrunched up in there. Didn't look like a death curl, but more like a stress curl kind of hiding in the corner. And although it didn't look terrible, something just told me it, it wasn't quite right. So I took her enclosure out and took the paintbrush and kind of poked her legs. She was not responsive. And so I basically moved some of the dirt off the top of her. It didn't take long to figure out that she was dead. She did not make it. So bummed, really bummed because, and again, when she didn't eat for almost two years, I think it was, and molted, I really didn't think this was going to have a, a happy ending or a good outcome only because it just physiologically the toll that must have taken on her because she was in really rough shape. She was incredibly thin before the molt and then she had the molt and it was like, all right, how how good a shape could she possibly be in? But when I saw her eating a lot, I got very, very hopeful and I went through it afterwards. I went through a cage because I've had tarantulas before that will kill things and I've had it happen twice. One species, I can't for the life of me remember which one it was. One of them was a Nandu chromatis that would kill prey, chew its head off, and then kind of almost stash the prey or bury the prey in a corner. It was some of the weirdest behavior I have ever seen from anything. And what happened was I had this, all of a sudden I opened up my transfer room one day and walked in, went to do some feeding, and there were these little, you know, gnats or flies everywhere and I'm like where in God's name are these coming from so I pull down I'm going through the enclosures I'm like uh oh I see a Nandu enclosure is just full of them I'm like oh no 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 did she pass how was that I just fed her like two days before this so I didn't understand how she could have you know been to the point where she was decomposing already I open up the the enclosure all these flies come out I can't figure out what's going on. I'm like, what is in here? Finally, I dig up in the corner. There's this dirty spot, and I see like a cricket leg poking out. I pulled four crickets out of it. It was the weirdest thing. It was like she was serial killing crickets. I, I called Billy, and I'm like, I have never seen anything like this. And three of the crickets were headless. So go figure. She's going to have a, a – it's still got to come up with a name for her. She's much bigger now. She's done great. But I digress. This was the only time – there was another one where one was killing them and just leaving them. And it wasn't in pre It was an odd behavior. And – 
in this case, she. I was wondering maybe was she killing them and stashing them? Was I missing? Were they, were they hiding out somewhere? Sometimes what will happen is you'll drop a cricket or prey item into an enclosure. You won't see it. You'll assume the spider ate, and then later on you'll find it. Uh, red runners are notorious for this. You'll find it like underneath a piece of cork bark hanging out. I've dropped red runners in that are like tiny little red runners, and then months later gone to rehouse a spider and found like an almost sub-adult red runner in there. So it does happen. It does happen that they stash them, but I didn't find any evidence except one bolus. So she was eating. It's just apparently whatever damage had happened that last time, whatever damage, whatever had gotten into her that it caused her not to eat and triggered this this new molt in a, in a, in a situation where she wasn't obviously in any physical shape to molt it obviously did her in so i'm really disappointed because you know i again this was the one i found at the pet store for like it, it she was incredibly i was shocked i walked into a pet store it was like 30 bucks and they were on sale and nobody could find these things at this point and uh, i love this species you know i have the other one which is the one that i feature in a lot of the videos that uh, is one of the only spiders that i've actually handle on occasion only because she comes right out into my hand this one, just a real bummer to lose it because it's a species you can't find very, you know, you find the slings now and eventually I will be getting some slings to raise them up, but they, they're so slow growing. It's going to be years before I have one of those beautiful adults on my hand. And uh, just, you know, again, wonderful spider, really bummed out about it. it i not sure. I mean, I really can't think of anything I could have done. Her enclosure was set up correctly. She was just something inside perhaps for the previous molt, not this molt, but the one before that. Perhaps there were some issues with her sucking stomach. I don't know, but the, she has passed, so I buried her yesterday. And now we're down to one homeoma chilensis, so we'll make sure that uh, well, that girl's doing very, very well. Knock on wood, she ate again yesterday. It's like you kind of freak out, like, all right, you're eating, right? And she's fattening up great. Because she did go through a period where she wasn't eating a lot. It's, it's something I've noticed with the, the wild-caught specimen. So told people I'd keep them updated. I hate starting it off on a note like this, but uh, I do want to keep everybody in the loop. I'll probably do a video of it as well. I got some footage, although I don't know. I hate posting up dead spider footage. I have this thing with it. My Theraphosostermi female died after a molt, I think it was last summer, and I shot a bunch of footage of her molting. I shot a bunch of footage of her afterwards, and then I was kind of doing updates on her as I was hoping she'd get better, and then when all was said and done, I just deleted the footage. I'm like, I don't even want to watch this again. Like, it was, it was depressing enough without having to relive it and put a video up and I'm really not the type that needs you know people all the condolences and stuff like that it's just kind of I privately mourned buried her in the backyard and you know that was it so anyway moving on to subjects that are a little less depressing let's go back and do some of the listener questions I am for people who want me to do some of the species notes I am going back and doing the species notes please don't think I've gone completely away from that but again, as I've mentioned before, sometimes if I pick a species that people aren't interested in or have already kept for a while, this really it, it doesn't appeal to as many people. So I try to kind of mix things up a little bit. And I do enjoy answering these questions because, again, it makes it easier for me when somebody emails. One of the ones I just did, somebody emailed me a question about, and I'm like, you know what? Here's a podcast I just did, and I answered the exact same question. It just makes it a little easier for me instead of writing out a lengthy email. So it's selfishly motivated. All of this is selfishly motivated. So I'm going to click over to Facebook. And we have one by Meg Haviland. I hope I pronounced your name right, Meg. Please correct me if I didn't. Moisture and enclosure for different types of tarantulas. How often should you redo substrate? Mixture of it or just renewing if not doing a rehouse? Not feeling guilty about tearing apart their great webbing. Just rehouse the C versicolor since she clearly outgrew her enclosure and six days later she's still exploring. No signs of webbing. On the hunt for new enclosures with uh, for a few more rehouses soon. All right, Meg. So the... 
I'm going to cover this. There's a couple different questions here. One that I, I think I revisited recently, and it's something that I've changed my opinion on over the years as I click and close this up so I can actually see the program I'm using, is how often the change. And I think, I, again, I covered this somewhat recently, but it bears repeating. Originally, when you learn about tarantulas, the big thing that would tell you is they're very clean animals. They don't need to be changed much. I've had people... Uh, this was literally, I think, right before the summer started. I got an email from somebody asking me why their Bialbopolosum, I think it was, wouldn't settle in. They didn't understand. It's climbing the cages. It's all out of sorts. It never settles down. It hasn't been eating. And they're like, I just did its monthly uh, cleaning. And I just, it's something the way it was phrased, I asked the person, monthly cleaning? What do you mean by monthly cleaning? Did you just like clean off the glass and, you know, paw boluses? And like, oh no, I dumped all the substrate, replaced all the substrate. And I'm like, well, there it is. They're, these are species that once you set them up, the majority of them, they're good for quite a long time. You don't need to change them like you would, I don't know, any other pet like a bird with a newspaper or ferrets cleaning out or hamsters or whatever. It's not like something you have to dump everything out, replace it because they do these little poos. You can kind of scoop them out. They're, they dry out pretty quickly. They're, they're not very offensive. They don't smell particularly bad. I don't know. I've never actually smelled one, so I, I don't think they stink. It's not like my snake goes. It's it's really smelly. But you can clean the boluses out. You can spot clean them, and they're perfectly fine. And I think that's something when I first got in the hobby. Remember all the books, like, you don't have to change them much at all. You can set them up. They can stay years on the same substrate. And for many species, that's true. And I think that's more of the arid species. Uh, if I got a Brachypelma species, I got a Gramostola species, or maybe even some of the Afonopelma species, I don't need to change that substrate out very often because... The substrate really isn't getting dirty. You're not adding a lot of water to it. If you're doing your spot cleaning, if you're pulling the boluses out, if you're pulling any dead prey items out, if you know you find any spots of poo on the ground, all it takes, I have these little spoons, they just go in there and clean it right out, you're perfectly fine. And I think for a lot of spiders, that's the case, as long as they don't outgrow the enclosure. The caveat to that is the spiders that are moisture dependent. I think that's a little bit different. I think with moisture-dependent species, we have to recognize the fact that we're using soil and we're dampening it repeatedly over the course of a year's time. How many times are you adding water in? And we're also putting prey items in there that because of the water have more of a chance of becoming wet again and molding and decomposing, which is going to introduce bacteria and undesirables into the enclosure. Now, I don't know how many of these are... Uh, what hazardous for tarantulas or how many of them could potentially impact the health of a tarantula. But you have to think if you have, say it's a four gallon container full of a bunch of dirt and you keep dropping in crickets, you're not going to catch all the biological waste from that. There's going to be a bullet somewhere you're going to miss. There's going to be, you know, a leg somewhere you missed. that's eventually going to decompose and that's going to introduce bacteria into the enclosure. Now it doesn't seem very far-fetched to me to believe that after a certain amount of time of dropping in prey items, pouring in water, dropping in more prey is pouring, that you're not going to get some stuff in that soil that you may not want there. So that's one of the things I started thinking of with some of my fossorial species in particular is the fact that sadly you want them to burrow down that becomes their security blanket. That's why, you know, we've been talking a lot lately about how to keep tarantulas from becoming aggressive, giving them some depth, allows them to hide the retreat. They can stay in their burrows. However, it could also create a Petri dish after time goes on. 
of bacteria that could be potentially harmful to your tarantulas. I don't think that's very far-fetched. It was when I was doing some, you know, exploring of the bioactive enclosures and why they might be a good thing that I started reading about, you know, you have the good types of bacteria, the good types of fungi, and then you have the bad types. And the idea is you set up an enclosure that all these bacteria and fungi, they work together to kind of create a healthy environment. Now, if we don't have any of those elements in a regular, you know, tarantula setup, and I'm just putting in... You know, my big thing was I was using topsoil for a while, and I'll probably go back to it eventually because I believe it was only those bags of agway that were bad that ended up, that was a, a tragedy as far as I'm concerned. But with topsoil, you never know what you're getting. There is going to be some biological matter in there. There's rotting plant life. There is rot. You never know. Sometimes there's some animal dung in, although you try to avoid that. There are things in there that could, in the right environment, you know, you could get some bacteria that explode. So, Back to the point, how often do you change them? With an arid species, I don't worry about it as much. They are not particularly messy. If you're not pouring in gobs of water, it's not going to be as much of an issue. And I've kept, you know, I've had some on there for a couple of years without any issue. Usually, unless they need, something facilitates me having to change their substrate. Like if I find something rotten in there or if I'm getting some of that fungus that I can't stand. And again, it's it's more cosmetic, but I, I don't want it in there. Then I might change it. Or if they outgrow it, obviously that's it. But for the most part, for the arid species, you don't have to worry too much. For slings, you're not going to worry too much because let's call it as it is for 90% of the slings out there. Yeah, we'll go 60% of the slings out there. They're going to outgrow those sling enclosures long before you have any real issues or should have any real issues. For slings, if you do notice a huge mold outbreak, I mean, I think, honestly, I, I just it's unsightly. It may not be harmful, but you want to get that out of there. That means it's probably too moist and too dank. And again, the mold's more of a sign that the mold's not really the thing that's going to threaten them. It's the other stuff that comes with the mold that could possibly be there with the mold. So that would be a reason to change it. But for most slings, I don't find a need to change or you know update their enclosures until they're ready to move on into their juvenile enclosures. However, with fossorial species, especially ones, you know, the majority of them require moist substrate. That's something I'm giving more thought to as far as replacing the substrate a little more often. Now, I wouldn't go so much. I'm not doing it yearly right now. I'm kind of you know keeping an eye on it. But again, you start to notice when things start to not look so fresh. I've seen the webbing kind of turn yellow. I've seen, a, you know, sometimes the odor you get from it, it doesn't, it, you want that earthly odor, but sometimes it starts to get like underlying, like there's other things going on here than just dirt. Then it might be time to think of a rehouse. And what I've been doing is I kind of play by ear. When I think of one's been in there, like I'm looking at my Kilobrachis species, Guangziensis. She's been in her current enclosure uh, probably about three years now. And the bottom layers are always moist. The top layers I let dry out a bit. The Dirt looks like it's in good shape. It doesn't look, she's very clean. She always brings her boluses out. However, I'm looking at the point like, A, she's been in there a while. That could that could have formed some stuff in there I don't want. B, I use these older enclosures that I don't even use. It's been so long since I rehoused her, I don't even use these types anymore. They were the old, um, some type of Sterilite, but I, there was one I bought down at the local family dollar that I really didn't like to begin with, but it had a lot of depth to it. So she's in there with like nine, nine and a half inches of dirt. And I'm looking now at just putting her in a nicer enclosure. So some, what I've been doing personally is for some of the fossorial species that have been buried for a while that I haven't changed the dirt in a while, I look for nicer enclosures. So then I have an, an added reason to rehouse them. It's not just, all right, I don't want to take the chance of this dirt starting to have nasty stuff in it. It's also, I'm also going to give them an upgrade in the enclosure they're getting. So it's kind of like a win-win. You get clean substrate and I get to see a prettier enclosure. So that's something to think about as far as the fossorial species. If you don't have a bioactive setup, I'm assuming with a bioactive setup, when you introduce things in there like Bioshot, a lot of them have 
a lot of them have things you add to your substrate beforehand to kind of encourage those good bacteria, those good, the good fungi to go in there and, and take hold, then it's probably a different situation because it's naturally going to break down the organic waste that remain from prey items. It could be the things that cause problems. And again, most of them are very clean. The majority of them are very clean, and I've had people ask, you know, what happens if they leave a bolus down there? It doesn't happen very often. I guess it can happen. And then the trick is to try to, you know, depending on the species, sometimes you can go in there if you can see it with a pair of long tongs, go down there and grab it. But again, you're running the risk of the tarantula attacking the tongs and breaking its fang. It'd be a little tricky, but most of them will drag the waste up and drop it either in a water dish or behind a water dish in a corner. If you watch them enough, they tend to deposit the stuff in the same spot. Usually, a lot of them do the water dishes because I think in the wild, if you have a body of water, it's a good place to throw out your trash. So normally, there shouldn't be many concerns there. But Personally, I'm finding, and I'm not telling, and I want to make this clear because considering last episode was all about making sure I'm not misunderstood, I'm not telling everybody out there to go change their tarantulas all the time. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying I do think we sometimes it's very easy because you can just drop them in a, you know, a, a big pot of dirt or a big cage of dirt and you let them go and they stay in there indefinitely. And obviously a lot of people have done this and I'm sure there's people that have come in and go, I've had my Kilobrocky species in the same pile of dirt for eight years. Totally cool. I don't, I done this a lot myself and I've had ones that have been in there for a long, long time that I've never had issues with. However, I have had a couple mysterious deaths over the years where things have gone out and hovered around the water dish where I've talked to people about it and they've talked about the fact that they can probably get bacterial infections. That could happen being in unsanitary conditions and sometimes we're not able to correctly or adequately identify when conditions become such in one of those enclosures that it could be hazardous to the animal. That's just the truth. A, a, a container of dirt looks like a container of dirt. There's not really a warning sign like, oh, there we go. This one's probably got some stuff in it I don't want. It can be difficult. So personally, what I'm starting to do is, and this is kind of coinciding with the fact that I'm doing bio, bioactive enclosures now, and I've been upgrading all my enclosures for the last six months because I've, for the last almost year, I haven't bought any tarantulas because I got to a point where I realized this was enough to take care of for the time being. We're not going to be one of those people that turns into a hoarder because I'm trying to get new and impressive stuff. I stopped until I had a bunch of males mature. Now I'm starting to make some more room. But I've been having a lot of fun redoing the cages, doing some bioactives, but trying some different nice high-end enclosures to see what they look like. So it's I basically strategically look at spiders like, all right, this spider's been in that cage for three years. What can I buy that will look nicer, that'll make an appropriate cage for it, that'll allow me to transfer it, get rid of that old dirt, get some fresh substrate in there? Let's put it that way. So I'm not telling everybody to go rehouse all your spiders. I am saying that maybe, you know, for a lot of us, the thought is you just put them in the dirt, you leave them alone, and they're good for life. And maybe we need to rethink that a bit. Maybe that's what we can attribute some of these mysterious deaths to. I had somebody contact me recently. I believe it was a Kilobrockies. Discolus blue or Vietnam blue, but it mysteriously, they had it in the enclosure, had been doing great, older female, and then suddenly just died on them. And then, you know, I don't know what the cause is. It could just be, you know, there was a molt issue, whatever, but it does get you thinking when you have these fossil, mysterious fossorial deaths if there's something we're not seeing. So the best way to prevent that, because we can't see it, is to be a little more diligent, a little more cautious with how often we clean them or, you know, change and, and maintain them. And make sure that we're not creating what we think are these glorious, you know, burrows for them, which actually turn into petri dish uh, petri dishes of harmful bacteria. I mean, that's my thought on it. So, again, personally, I just use it as an opportunity. Like, you don't want to uproot them every year. You don't want to uproot them every couple months. That's ridiculous. But I do think if they've been in there for quite a while, they've dropped a lot of prey items in. It's been a few years of moistening substrate. It's drying out, moistening, drying out. Maybe it's time to give it some thought. Obviously, rehousing fossil species isn't fun. 
Obviously, it leads to the spider having to settle back down and make a burrow again. But they're very, they're very resilient creatures. They're very adaptive. So you know, anybody that's done a rehousing, it's always that you put them in, they wander around a little bit, they look really sad, and they're all shriveled in the corner trying to hide. And then within a few days, they're usually settled down. And they dig a hole, especially if you give them a starter burrow, do their thing again, web up, and they're eaten, and they're fine. So. My thought is dry species, don't worry about it as much. It's not a big deal. You know, again, I, one of the parts, the fun parts of the hobby for me is finding new enclosure types, finding better, you know, ways to display your animals. I think that's as you get into it. And again, I have nothing against sterilite boxes, use them for years, still use them for a lot of things, but I'm at a point in the hobby now where I'm not buying as many spiders. So I'm going to pour money into other places and that's the enclosures. And I think that's a, a fun part of the hobby. So make that a fun part of the hobby. Like not so much, oh gosh, I got to change this one because it's been in its dirt for three years, but more, oh gosh, I just found this amazing enclosure I want to try out with it. It it, it works for me. So again, fossorial species, those are the ones I would look at, but most of them you don't need to clean that often. It comes down to, you know, when the spider outgrows an enclosure and most of us start to get an idea. It's it's not a process that I can tell you at this size, the spider is going to need to be rehoused. It, It depends. I've had spiders that are, you know, they're in an enclosure it seems to be the perfect size. One molt later, the enclosure looks ridiculously small for them. I'm thinking of a Formictopus species, for example, that will go from, you know, the enclosure's perfect to, oh my gosh, this enclosure's terribly tiny. Uh, Theraphosa species, another one. I remember putting one of my first, my first Theraphosa species, I put in the, I think it's two quart mainstay containers from Walmart because I gave them some substrate to dig. I wanted a lot of moisture in there. And the, when I got the, the slings originally, I believe about an inch and a quarter or so, they molted once and was like, oh my gosh, this thing's already too big for this enclosure. So I think obviously it stinks having to tear down webbing is another one. I just rehoused my GBB into a bioactive enclosure. And the reason why I waited so long to do so, because the old enclosure was definitely smaller and it needed a bigger enclosure was because of all the wonderful webbing. I didn't want to tear up its old home, but you know what? You go in there now, this was about three months ago. I think I did this and it is already blanketed. The whole thing in white sits right out there in the open. It settles in. So don't let that be a deterrent. They will they will regroup. They will settle back in. Again, you don't want to do it to them constantly. Do I think spiders need to be changed monthly? Absolutely not. Do I think they need to be changed every six months for a spider that you're doing your spot, you know, your spot cleaning, pulling out boluses? No, I don't. Year? Probably not. Two years for many? No, they don't. But when they're in there for a while, the dirt's been sitting in there for a while, and it's a species that you're repeatedly adding water to. Yeah, I think we do need to give thought to that. So anyway, that's a long answer to that one. Now, as far as adding water to substrate, with the slings, you have to be careful. I mean, if you're using a dram bottle, I think one of the tricks I use is I get those little pipettes or pipettes, 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 I think it is. I bought a bunch on Amazon. I thought I was buying like a handful. It was like a hundred of them. They're little squishy pipettes. And what you do is you fill those up with water. You stick the tip of that right down the side. And you carefully pour some water in so it gets down to the lower levels. Again, you're not so concerned about the upper levels as you are the lower levels. The trick is you want them to be able to burrow to the moisture level you need. Don't worry. Generally speaking, if you're keeping slings in the top of the substrate, if all the substrate's wet, that's going to create a pretty dank environment in there. You want the top, the top can dry up a little bit, but those bottom layers to stay moist, which is why I take that pipette. I carefully put it down the side and squirt some water into the bottom layers. Again, you always want to make sure you know where the sling and its burrow is because I did one time go in, stuck my pipette in there, and I flooded its burrow. I think I'm shooting right out of there. I was like, oh man, sorry, buddy. So you do want to make sure you know where the sling is, but that's the easiest way I've found to add 
the moisture to sling enclosures. And same thing with adult enclosures. The trick with adult enclosure or juvenile enclosures is to pour the water so it goes down the sides and soaks into the bottom. So even I have my big thing, make it rain. I have my container. I think we've had that now for about five years. It was a juice container. I drilled, I burned some holes in the top. So I use like a watering can like you would a garden. And when I go in there, when I moisten down the enclosures, I really make it pour. Like I pour a lot of water in there. However, one thing that isn't mentioned a lot, depending on what substrate you're using, some absorb water better than others. Some of them will just basically mud up at the top. So for example, I used to use just straight topsoil. I had people swear to me, oh, straight topsoil absorbs water great, holds water great. Well, the problem is when it starts off, a lot of times when you get topsoil, it's moist and it will absorb water. It seems like moisture substrate more easily absorbs water. It's a weird thing. I don't know. So maybe somebody can explain the science behind that. But once it starts to dry out, the stuff basically you'll get a, a topsoil. It's very, it's usually much more dense than cocoa fiber or even peat. And when you pour water on the top, it just basically sits on the top, turns the mud and only moistens down the top, you know, quarter to a half inch or so. And I've had this problem for quite some time, which is why I went back to old school tea keeping where they used to keep everything on vermiculite and started mixing vermiculite in. Now, vermiculite absorbs water well. It uh, loosens up the substrate a bit and allows the water to percolate down through better, which is what you want. Again, if it's wintertime and you're pouring water in and it's sitting on the top, that stuff's going to evaporate in a day, no problem. However, if you can get that water to go down to the bottom, it takes much longer for the water to evaporate. It allows the tarantula to dig down to the level it wants. So keep that in mind. Cocoa fiber, I found, will absorb water very, very well, but it dries out super quickly. I think I mentioned previously that my son and I several years ago did an experiment where we had cocoa fiber, peat, topsoil, and basically did a bunch of different concoctions of them, added the same amount of water to each one, and then measured the weight of it, how much weight it lost in water to see which held on longest. The topsoil vermiculite held on to it the longest. The one that evaporated the quickest and got fluffiest fastest was, of course, the cocoa fiber, which is one of the reasons I started moving away from that when I was keeping you know moisture-dependent fossorial species. So again, not trying to tear down cocoa fiber or tell people not to use cocoa fiber. I still have a bunch of cocoa fiber I use, but the trick is mixing the substrates to get what you want. For dry enclosures, it's not such a big deal. For moist enclosures, I do think that if you create your own mixture that works for you, it's going to work better than something that's directly out of the bag or just a rehydrated brick of cocoa fiber. So for a while, what I would do was mix topsoil, with vermiculite and depending on how moist the cage was going to be I would add more of the vermiculite and that has worked great for me in the past again only moved away from it because I got those bad bags from Agway but I used that for many 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 years was able to mix a mixture that worked well for me at one point I was mixing topsoil cocoa fiber which kind of fluffed it up fluffed it up a little bit and vermiculite that works well too because again the cocoa fiber is going to absorb really well vermiculite is going to absorb really well but the actual dirt the topsoil is going to help you know pack down and make it much easier for the spider to burrow and for the burrows to hold their shape so don't be afraid to mess around with there's no magic everybody's got their own little mixture mine was always basically i bought these big oh gosh they're huge bags of vermiculite don't buy the little ones. If you go to a farm supply place, you can buy the big bags of vermiculite and then the top. So the big bags, I think, were about 30 bucks, but they last a long time. And then you can get the topsoil sometimes for a buck fifty. Get a big sterilite bin and just start mixing it and see what you get. Do some experiments with it. This is one of the fun parts of the hobby for me, playing with the dirt. I know it sounds weird. Um, hopefully some people out there are shaking their heads going, yep, been there. But I love mixing the dirt. I have a video up where I show what I use for my mixtures and how I add moisture. 
The trick is to make a mixture that allows the water to percolate down, to filter down through to the lower levels, and that holds on to the moisture so you don't have to add it as often because it can be a pain in the butt wintertime when the furnace goes on and these enclosures are drying out and you have to keep adding water. The trick is if you set them up right, if you add the water correctly, you shouldn't have to do that as often. And again, another trick for adding water to substrate in larger containers, if it's a plastic one that's got some flexibility, kind of bend the side outward and pour the water so it goes down between the side of the enclosure and the dirt and goes down to the bottom. What will happen is it'll seep across the bottom and you'll get those moist bottom layers. That tends to work great. It still can work with like a glass or a harder plastic enclosure, but you want to tilt it a little bit. And what will happen is the water is going to take the path of least resistance when it filters down through. So if you tilt it a little bit and pour it along that seam where the dirt meets the side of the enclosure it's going to trickle down much faster and you'll get it down into those lower levels if you mix enough vermiculite and stuff with it it usually allows it to penetrate but just a heads up anything that's a heavy webber that webbing tends to be waterproof so what will happen is they'll web they'll do a thin layer of web over all the substrate you'll go to pour the water in it'll never even make it to the dirt at first it'll kind of puddle up on top because the webbing's holding up so just something to keep track of again that's when I find it's easier to tilt the enclosure on the side pour water in let it trickle down through some Sometimes if you've got a substrate that's really absorbing things well and if you've done a nice mixture, you just go in there and you do the old make it rain. You you pour the water in there, not to the point where... It's becoming saturated. What you want is for that water to trickle down through. But if, if you've got a good mixture that allows the water to soak through, it'll go right down through no problem. I have some that, I, you know, basically I take this bottle, I squeeze the water so it's like a simulated downpour and you watch the water just sink on in. If it's puddling up top, again, shoot for the edges. Next time you mix your up your substrate, try to add a little more vermiculite to have it work on through. I don't use perlite. I've had people ask about that. I just don't like the consistency of it, but I have heard people that use, you know, potting soil that has perlite in it. And that's another thing, obviously, that's used to help drainage with soils. So I, I personally don't have experience with it. Maybe somebody out there that's used soil with perlite can chime in. It seems to me, I do have a bag of it in my garage that I was, what did I buy it for? I was mixing, oh, for some of my bioactives, I found that if you put perlite underneath it, it helps it drain and keeps the roots from rotting. And I bought a bag of it, but I've never really mixed it with substrate. So that's something you could look at as well. I've always found vermiculite work really well. And again, that was something we got from the 90s when they used to keep everything on vermiculite. So that's my best tip for the water. You want it to go down through to the bottom. That's I've had people send pictures and they're like, yeah, I added water to the substrate and evaporated real quick. Well, what they were doing is like misting on the top. The misting... It's okay for, you know, my arboreal species will come kind of vacuum it up the glass. I'll sometimes mist it, everything down. I have one that kind of one of those ones you pump up, uses air pressure, and you can kind of mist everything down. Like simulate, you know, like a rain shower or what it's probably like in a rainforest where everything's a little dewy and misty because I've seen them drink off the leaves and stuff of that nature, off the cork bark. So I give them a little mist, but that's not going to keep your moisture levels in your enclosure up. You want those substrate levels to be moist. And then furthermore, if you have a moisture-dependent species, one that you know it's moisture dependent whether you think it's a burrowing species or not give it several inches of substrate because that's going to make it a lot easier i've had people that have kept t stermy that don't realize a the the slings and juveniles will burrow and i had an adult that burrowed that was i believe seven or eight inches that actually burrowed before a mole and they don't realize that so they give them like an inch or two of substrate you want to give 
the, I find the more substrate for most species, the better, even some of your arboreal ones, because that's going to allow it to hold on to the humidity more. If I put an inch of substrate in there and moisten it down, that's that water is going to evaporate out much, much more quickly than it would for, say, four or five inches of substrate. Because what will happen with four or five inches of substrate, that top band will dry out, and then the bottom will slowly dry out over time, which means you don't have to worry as much about keeping it moist, which I think makes things much easier. So... That's my take on that uh, as far as how to add the moisture to it. Hopefully that covers, I know I've covered this topic before, but it seems to be one that's, you know, it, it causes people a lot of stress and confusion. And I went through it myself. I can remember my cocoa fiber drying out too quickly. I can remember the first time I used topsoil. I was all excited because people were like, oh, topsoil is great. Pouring water in and watch it just make a muddy mess on the top of the enclosure and trying to figure out, all right, there's got to be something more to this. So again, I think that's why a lot of us start experimenting with different types of substrates. I think that's why a lot of us start mixing our own substrate. And I do think for many of us, that's an integral part of the hobby for us. It shows our growth where we start realizing, all right, I've tried all these different things. Now let me figure out what works best for me. So again, I've explained what works well for myself. It's up to, you know, feel free to experiment. Let me know. The other big thing I've been playing with now is putting clay into some of the substrates. I've had people talk about the clay and how it helps create, you know, naturally in many of their environments, if you break down what's in the soil where they're at it's got clay in it and that's one of the things that helps them hold their burrows together so i have been playing with that a little bit but feel free to chime in on what you guys are using what works for you again what works for i have what works for me it works for me great somebody else might find something that works better for them feel free to experiment but remember it's it's about getting that penetration of the water it's not having the water pool up at the top it's not you know moistening the top two inches of your cocoa fiber and having two days later it be bone dry it's having it settle in there and keeping that nice dark band at the bottom that's always moist for those species that need it. Now, Meg, as far as your question about spiders that you rehouse and they wander around for a while, sometimes there's a couple things going on. Sometimes it just takes spiders longer than others to settle down and become accustomed to their new surroundings. That's totally normal. Other times, especially with species that are heavy webbers or burrowers or viculary, I found quite a bit, if they don't feel like they have enough cover, they tend to freak out and go for the corners of the enclosure. They they don't hide. They tend to have that stress position, so to speak, where they kind of scrunch up. And I think the part of it is just recognizing that you may need to add a little more cover than you normally would for other species. And I'm not, again, I haven't seen your enclosure. I'm not judging. You, you might have an enclosure that's completely full of cover. I don't doubt it. But with carabina and avicularia species, I usually find the more cover you can give them, the better I tend to go overboard. So, for example, I rehoused my female carabina versicolor a couple of years ago, a few years ago before I bred her into a new enclosure. And I had the cork bark in a corner. I had three plastic plants so basically the entire enclosure was pretty much full of foliage and she settled down pretty quickly she took a spot behind some of the foliage and the cork bark and started doing a little webbing there I had a P. metallica that I put into an extra large critter keeper I put in one plant one cork bark leaned to the side the water dish it was a nice spacious enclosure but there wasn't a lot of cover and she took forever to settle in she would basically anytime i'd open the container she was kind of looked very stressed and was in a corner she did not seem comfortable so i put her in something smaller with a lot more cover and she did a lot better after that for a while so I do think with the majority of species, even terrestrial species, the more cover you can give them, the quicker they're going to settle in. What ends up happening sometimes is we create our little, like, for terrestrial. We pour in our substrate. We put our obligatory 
piece of cork bark. We put a little starter burrow. We maybe stick one plastic plant in. We put a water dish at the opposite end of the cage, throw a little moss in there. I'm like, there you go, buddy. There's your new home. Make sure you go right to that cork bark and hide. And then when they don't immediately adapt to the thing that we think they should be adapting to, we freak out. And I think sometimes I'm guilty of this. I forget sometimes that, you know what? The spider's going to do what the spider wants to do. It may not like the one we provided for him. So I found sometimes that with certain species, I will give them multiple hides to start off. I've been using more than one piece of cork bark in some of my enclosures now. So I give them a couple opportunities. Sometimes I stack cork bark up. I will try to arrange the plastic foliage so it's around the cork bark to again add some cover and encourage them to seek refuge there. Uh, With water dishes, a lot of times I put the water dish way out in the boonies and they don't come out to visit. So I'm thinking of my piantinus. I gave her a huge enclosure and I put a big water dish at the opposite end of the cage. She never ventures over to it. I end up moving the water dish closer to her. So again, providing them more cover, I think Again, I'm guilty of the Spartan enclosure, so I'm not judging anybody. Sometimes we just get in the habits like dirt, piece of cork bark, one plastic plant, little sphagnum moss, uh, one water dish, and we're done. And we don't realize that if we can add more in there, sometimes it may look a little busier to us, but it's going to allow them to settle in better. And sometimes I've found that you can remove stuff afterwards if it's not serving a purpose. So for example, for my Caribbean Versicolor, I added all these plants in. She settled in. She did her webbing. There was this plant hanging vine that I had suction cupped to the other end of her enclosure that was just kind of getting pooed over and wasn't really serving any purpose. So I pulled that one out. She ended up expanding her web over to that area without that being there. So there's nothing to say we can't pull stuff out afterwards and again we don't want I I remember back in the day somebody posting they were doing some enclosures and they had these things so full of like I remember one of them, it was like the it was uh, the crusty crab was in it for a thing and there was like palm trees and this and that I'm not saying decorate it like you would like a fish tank the idea is to be strategic to create some of that natural feng shui. I, I just wanted to use the word feng shui. I, I don't even think that's appropriate here. But anyway, I got to use feng shui in a podcast. I'm excited now. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Try to build up something that makes it's it's functional anesthetic. So if I have a piece of cork bark, why not add two pieces of cork bark? Why not add a piece of cork bark at both ends of the enclosures? Like when we do snakes, I will give them, you know, they have the warm side and the cool side. And obviously this doesn't apply to tarantulas, but you give them a choice of where they want to go. Tarantulas, if you give them a couple choices, they're going to pick the one that feels most comfortable to them. Sometimes you'll notice you'll put down what you think is the perfect little cork bark hide, but the tarantulas, they tend to like those little cozy places. So if there's too much space under there, it doesn't feel secure to them. We're looking at it like this is going to be perfect. They're looking at it like, uh-uh, nope, not safe there. So experiment a little bit, have a little fun. I know it's a little more expensive to set up the enclosures, but in the long run, you're generally going to get spiders that settle down more quickly. I've been giving a lot of thought to this only because I get a lot of emails. I've had three of them this week of people that I don't understand why is my spider crawling up at the top of the cage? And then I find out they just rehouse it. And then I ask them to send me a photo of what the setup looks like. And there's like nothing in there. The spider's just scared and climbing up the corner to because it, it doesn't feel secure. So I start saying, all right, you want to add some plants? And I try to articulate, all right, no, one plant might not be be enough. One hide might not be enough. Feel free to add a little extra stuff in there. More cover is better, especially with some of those shire arboreal species. So again, I'm not judging anybody. And Meg, if you're looking at this going, man, I had this thing completely filled with some filled with decorations and plants or whatever. It's it may be. And sometimes it just takes them a while to settle in. I've had things that I've created what I thought were perfect enclosures for them with multiple plants, multiple hides, and they still wander around for a while. It depends, you know, specimen to specimen. Some of them take longer to settle in. But I have found, you know, for fossorial species, even I've seen people 
make the mistake of they read, well, this species doesn't need a hide. It'll make its own burrow. Well, not to start off. It's going to appreciate a hide. So what I will do is I will do the starter burrow, but I put a piece of cork bark under it. So it's got a place to hide before it goes into the starter burrow. They won't necessarily gravitate right to that starter burrow if there isn't something over top it where it can be dark and they can feel secure. So with fossorial species, it may end up getting, it's going to get buried most likely. Most pieces of cork bark I put in with fossorial species end up disappearing, but stick a, stick one in there in a corner and then make your starter burrow underneath it. So what it's going to do is retreat to that initially to get out of the light so it doesn't feel so exposed, and then it's going to start digging down the side. So you can use that to kind of guide where they're going to go and put their dens. And I, I think that's something where some people, I, I can't tell you how many people email and go, hey, I got this fossorial this species, it's supposed to be fossorial, but it won't dig. And then I look and it's basically a tub of dirt with the spider scrunched up in the corner, terrified. Give them some plants. There's nothing, you know, even if they rip them off out, you can always pull, if they don't use the plants, there's nothing to say you can't pull them out of the enclosure, wash them off and use them somewhere else later on. You know, always err on the side of caution, add some plants, give them a starter burrow um, with Arboreals, even some Pisolotheria species. I see people, they set up the arboreals and for Pisolotheria. Keep in mind that most of the slings are going to dig first. Some of the adults will still hide, so give them places to hide. Don't just put in that one piece of cork bark and expect your spider to pose on it photogenically right out in the open where you see it all the time. It doesn't necessarily work that way. They're going to want to hide mostly during the day. They're going to create those dirt curtains behind it. So give them materials to work with. Give them some cover to start with. It all comes down to supplying them with correct cover in those enclosures to help them settle down as quickly as possible. And again, it doesn't always work. I, sometimes I'll email somebody and go, you need to do this, and it doesn't work immediately. Like, well, you were wrong. Well, it, it just didn't work with that specimen. Everything's different, just like people, just like dogs, just like any other animal or living being out there. We all have our different personalities. We all have our different quirks. It's the same thing with spiders. But I have found that with just about everything, whether it be terrestrial, whether it be arboreal, whether it be fossorial, giving them adequate cover to start off. It's one of the reasons I'm loving these uh, these bioactive enclosures because while you're putting in all the plants, you're creating that natural environment. You're creating an environment more conducive to them. I found the ones in the, the ones I put into those bioactive enclosures tend to settle down very, very quickly. It's not like I'm finding them wandering around two days later. The arboreal species I put in them, a couple of salmopias, my um, HMAX, Within a day, they had webbed up the end of one of their tubes or gone behind the tubes and done some webbing up and they had created their little secure spots and they've been fine. So again, the key, adding as much coverage as possible. I know it can be a little pricey when buying the directions, but buy, you know, go into the Petco, buy those, some of those plastic plants, keep them on hand, those plastic vines. And throw them in there. Don't be afraid to add a little more. You know, again, don't overcrowd it, but give them spaces to hide. If you have it, sometimes they pick the darndest spot. I can tell you, many, many times I've created environments where I'm like, the spider is absolutely going to go here, and it picks a totally different spot. That's that's completely okay. But I can tell you also, the majority of my fossorial species end up digging exactly where I put that original piece of cork bark in that starter burrow. The majority of them go right to that spot. They dig right down low. I just did the H. divamatha. Gave it a, a cork bark starter burrow. Guess what it used? Right under the cork bark, dug its tunnel right down the side. Perfect. So things to think about when rehousing. Give them that, that extra coverage and have fun with it. Obviously, that's a fun. one of the cool parts of the hobby is creating these enclosures, these environments for them. And again, there's nothing wrong with ones that, you know, the stripped down ones. I've used them before for certain things. But I think for if you really want spiders to settle in quickly, if you really want to kind of guide where they're going to settle in, that's the trick. The arboreals, give them as much of that foliage and cover. Give them many spots. We'll go with that. Give them multiple spots to hide in, whether it be under a fake plant, whether it be under a couple pieces of cork bark or whatever you may be using. Give them some alternatives 
and more than likely they will settle in quickly. So I think, Meg, I covered your questions. If not, feel free to uh, respond to this one in the comment section on Facebook and I'll, you know, clarify. I have no problem clarifying things or, you know, if there's questions, answering the questions, I like that fact that they can be more interactive and I can go, all right, last week I did this. Here are some questions that we can kind of make sure we cover all the bases. But that's my thought. That's something I've, it's taken me a while to learn. I think earlier on I was doing the bare bones enclosures and some of my guys would have a hard time settling in. Now I've been a little more cognizant of how to set them up and realize that if you set them up correctly, you get the better results right off the bat than having to wait a week for the spider to finally begrudgingly go, all right, I'm going to settle down in this corner over here. So that will about do it for this one. Again, I appreciate anybody that takes the time to listen. Next week, we'll get back and talk about, you know, we'll at least get some species care in there because I know people are missing those. We'll continue to go through some of the questions, see where it goes. I am trying to shoot for 45 minutes an hour or so with the podcast. I've upgraded my plan a bit. Originally, I have the plan that was three hours. Now I'm upgrading to the four-hour plan. So we'll try to do longer ones uh, when it warrants it. Again, if I have something that's only a half hour, I'm not going to stretch it out needlessly, but it seems to be 45 minutes seems to be a good running time. So we'll go from there. So as always, feel free to check me out on YouTube. I just picked up a new camera that I've been experimenting with. So I'm catching some really nice shots. This one allows me to really zoom in close on them and get some awesome footage. Uh, the website's still going. I've got some articles I'll be posting up on that. Uh, feel free to comment on Facebook. I've been trying to be a little more diligent with that, although I haven't gotten, I've, I've got so many messages I have to get and I just haven't had the time to do it between YouTube where I tend, the other day I answered 110 messages on YouTube or comments. And then my website, I usually get several a day that some of them just aren't quick ones. I'll sit down and go, all right, I'm going to answer five or six of them today. I ended up doing two in an hour. So trying to keep up guys. And then I'm on Instagram. Just know that with Instagram, I'm kind of just throwing pictures up there. It's kind of my place to just kind of put pictures. I find that I've taken my tarantulas that look good. I use as my little personal gallery to show people at work and stuff about the spiders. So again, I'm not doing a lot of, uh, answering questions there as well, but I have been here and there checking my messages. Sometimes it'll pop up. Somebody wants to share a message with you or converse with you. I forget what the message is and I'm not very familiar with Instagram. So it takes me forever to figure out where the heck that is. But, uh, Again, on a lot of different social media, trying to keep up with all this stuff, but just please bear with me in that it, it, there's a lot of questions, a lot of people trying to contact me. So sometimes I don't get to anything and it's starting to eat away at me a little bit, but I do try my hardest. So anyway, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you guys all next time.